Welcome to the Winnow, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor for the Post and Courier. This week we're doing the Monumental Tasks edition of the Winnow. Since we're talking today about a whole things that take a lot of effort, we're going to talk about uh, food crawls, which is eating a whole lot of food all at one time. And uh, the Spring Food Festival is upon us, and uh, we're going to discuss the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, which is coming up here in a few weeks. And it's uh, definitely a monumental event for the uh, organizers to stage, uh, as well as talking some about some of the other food festivals, formats, and practices. And then finally, we'll talk literally about monuments, specifically the practice of creating museums and monuments uh, to food history. Uh, but up first, let's let's uh, talk about one type of monumental feat, which is uh, food crawls. Um, not, a couple of weeks ago here in Charleston, a half dozen grown men, uh, men and, and not in their early 20s either, they put on uh, head-to-toe hot dog costumes and were parading all over Charleston, uh, eating hot dogs, I think, at pretty much any place they could find that had hot dogs, starting way over in Mount Pleasant, ending up downtown on King Street uh, in popped up all over social media because, you know, who wouldn't get pictures of six men walking down the street or however many it was uh, in hot dog costumes. And now, no, I know, Hannah, the thing that may have prompted you to do a little piece recently about uh, the various food crawls, and until I saw it, I never really thought, oh, wait, when did this thing start? So, you know, because I've done a lot of food crawls myself. I've never put on a costume for it. It just involves basically going around and eating. But what did you find? I mean, when, when did people start crawling around and eating food? So there isn't, I wasn't able to pinpoint any exact historical moment when someone said, let's crawl. But I think as long as there is more than one establishment serving the same item, um, someone's going to want to try both of them. I, mean, I can guess it may have come out bar crawling, which would be, you know, because if you go from one to the next, you'll be crawling at some point in the night but are crawling so it looks like for whatever reason Oklahoma was an early leader in this Oklahoma (laughs) I would not have thought that at all no it's really strange so (laughs) at least to have any sort of municipal buy-in where you know where Oklahoma City was promoting it as an activity which was I I, I don't know it's really interesting and I I don't know that they had to to go by like covered wagon or anything Oklahoman you know it was just sort of (laughs) we've got a couple restaurants serving the same thing I mean it is an interesting way to make what could be an Listen, I love Oklahoma City. This is not about Oklahoma City. But it could be a really boring place, really interesting, because you're like, oh, everybody serves meatloaf. I could go eat meatloaf and meatloaf and meatloaf and meatloaf. And suddenly <laughs> you realize, okay, maybe it's a critical journey. Well, I've done a, f- a few crawls here around Charleston myself. Uh, Eric Dokeson and I, for the city yeah. paper, did a fried shrimp crawl, which is actually – took place over a couple of different days because you can only eat so many plates of fried shrimp and we wanted to hit as many spots as we can so we probably did three or four crawls technically uh which was a lot of fun because it's it's great to be able to go just do go all these different restaurants and focus on just one thing fried shrimp which you would not normally do and really get them side by side by side and and compare them and until you do that you're you know it's hard to it's hard to say which has the best fried shrimp in town if you eat fried shrimp once every two months and you, know, you try to remember all back. Right, absolutely. It really kind of attunes you to the differences um, in a way that this really, you know, so in looking at, I think a lot of the food television helped popularize this because even if the host of a Food Network show isn't actually crawling, if you put together a half hour worth of, you know, barbecue Sundays, uh, suddenly it looks like, well, that, that was a crawl. So, <laughs> and, and so what I wrote about is they are now monetizing this. I mean, there are companies that are essentially handing out these, you know, 25-cent passports um, that, so you get your stamp when you go to each place. This to me, I, you know, obviously I'm 
skeptical. Of it. So yeah. This seems somehow to be, even if they aren't making much money off it, tarnishing the the purity <laughs> of the of the food crawl. Some of the fun of it is just assembling it yourself and figuring out where to go and inviting Abs- friends and, and all that. Because I think a crawl is such a, a passionate thing. Yep. I mean, the, the, you're at the outset saying, I love this thing so much, I want to eat it, you know, 37 times in a row. <laughs> um, so I, I agree. I think that the grassroots aspect of it is, is really important. And, and someone also who's been on a bunch of crawls, I'd be curious what, what you think is most appropriate for a crawl and, and how to best, you know, maximize your your appetite and I mean, your What's experience. most appropriate in terms of food types yeah, of food? Yeah, food types, food types. Um, well, I have done what I call barbecue crawls sort of professionally for, for Southern Living, which is to, you know, go to Alabama and, and take three days and just eat as many barbecue restaurants as I can. But that that's not something I would have – people do barbecue road trips, but that's not – to me, a, a crawl, because you're in the car a lot. You're driving from one place to the next. You're trying to hit a whole area. Um, I, th- I think it's probably more you, – you got to pick an interesting food item that a lot of people serve, uh, which is why I think the, the weenie crawl worked or, because the wiener crawl because there's so many hot dogs and everyone's different. Um, we did a great uh, one. I think um, uh, Angel Postel and Stephanie Barner, who is sort of some P- food PR and food writers here in town – Put together uh, a regular softy crawl, which is a soft shell crab cr- crab uh, crawl. Hard to say uh, that happens every spring when the soft shell crabs are in, uh, and I don't particularly like that because it's you can only do it this limited time of year. All the restaurants are running soft shell crab specials, and so not only you know it's not something regular menu. So you go see what each restaurant's doing with it. They get very creative. And Harry Root, uh, who is uh, what's uh, Harry's. Wine Grassroots company, Grassroots Distributing, distributing. Uh, so a wine distributor always brings along uh, pink wine, so rosé wine, which goes great with soft shells, and you, you sort of have all that. So it's become something of a of a legendary event here in Charleston. I think it that's has. A that, that's a really special crawl. That's sort of, I mean, it's 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 fed into the whole soft shell crab. <laughs> uh, that soft shell crab thing is that now restaurants, knowing this crawl will occur, seem to be a little bit more motivated to make yep. you know more interesting preparation. And but- that's a very social one too, because not everyone goes on the whole thing from start to finish. Some people the the, the the schedule gets tweeted out, and some people join wherever they can, and some stay the whole time. Others come in and out, and so it's a great way to just see a bunch of people you know and and, have, and meet people you don't know and have. A have a good time right. during to me, the season. It really, in Charleston, that is the start of spring. It has become sort of this, you know, this yep. important thing on the calendar. Um, but I think soft shells are so great, not just because they're seasonal, but for crawling, because they can be prepared in so many different ways. And because a soft shell crab in and of itself is like, it's not super filling, just one yep. crab. That's yep. the thing. So you're right. I've all I've also done barbecue. A lot of times you end up on burger crawls. Which so are those tough. the barbecue is tough. Oh, the, uh, you can do it, but the key with barbecue is don't eat any sides or have one bite of a side. You got There's a whole art to it to not to not kill yourself. I don't see how anyone can do a burger crawl because usually one burger is enough to, <laughs> you know, the, especially the size they are these days to lay you out. How many how many can you eat? Of course, these guys ate, I don't know how many hot dogs they ate, but that, those aren't exactly light either. Right, yeah. right, right, right. I've had good success with, um, I was up in Windsor, uh, Toronto. There is a certain uh, pizza style that's specific there to there. And um, a slice here, a slice there actually makes for, for a pretty good crawl. How many places do you have to go to be a crawl? To actually crawl? I think two's definitely not a crawl. Two's not a crawl. Two's just dessert or two's like, you know, right, right. two dinners. <laughs> yeah, it's not the, not really I, crawl. I think I think four. I think you start crawling at four. Yeah. yeah. I think four. I think by the time you get to six, it's starting to look pretty impressive. And then after a certain point, if you go over 10, then you're now you're in the realm of, oh, my Lord, how are you doing this? Right, exactly. <laughs> Does Pre- it require pre-planning? Um, like, do you yes. not, not eat breakfast and lunch? You know, I know. Oh, I'll say probably not, not so much. I, I don't – it's not like you – 
you know, don't, don't juice cleanse for three days or anything like that. No, not so much because it's not a exercise of I mean, if you're have a totally empty stomach, you're just going to eat real fast at your first place and fill up because you're starving. So it's actually probably fine to go in not ravenously hungry. Right, because it isn't about how much you can eat. It's really, it oftentimes, I mean, you're just paying attention to how this food tastes. So usually you're getting the smallest possible. I'm thinking, you know, like I've been on maybe like a fried chicken crawl where you're like, you know, one wing. You know, that's really, that's really all you want. <laughs> and then um, but there is a lot of pre preparation need to do in terms of finding where to go it's like when eric and i were doing the, the trying to put the, the fried shrimp crawl we spent hours on googling and on websites and yeah. trying to track down everybody's you know recommendations for fried shrimp and we right. put a big spreadsheet together and eliminated them the, it was the, a lot of work right and actually actually when i was just crawling i don't this wasn't crawling so much as i don't know what the verb is for this round upping uh, <laughs> in augusta georgia where i was going you know i were a lot of places i wanted to hit just to kind of find the highlights of, of, of Augusta. Um, first of all, I found there is an app now, which I, was, I wasn't aware of, that I think was designed for delivery drivers. It tells you exactly what order you should make all uh, your like stops in. Like so optimizes in. the route. Yeah, it's a route <laughs> optimizer. That may well be what it's called. And it was incredibly helpful for me, especially if you're in a, a place where you don't know, you know what's close to what. So, And that's great because you can say, like, this place is open from this time to that time because um, schedules matter. That is part of the fun of doing a crawl. Crawls are tough <laughs> if if you're having to get in a car and drive somewhere because, you know, that, but if you're in Charleston and you can walk, they're great. And you can map it all out so that you start way down East Bay street and you end up, you know, up on upper King and you, or you'll walk a couple of miles, which helps burn off uh, Absolutely. a lot that you ate. Definitely better than just hopping in the car and driving to the, the next barbecue <laughs> joint. For sure. you know, you're sleeping. Yep. So definitely I think for uh, the crawl implies, well, at least being if on your hands and knees, but <laughs> at least being on foot, you know, right. for, a, for a crawl, that, that's, I think, ideal as opposed to, I mean, you could do it in cars, but that now you're into something. Now you're into a road trip. You know, that, that's something different. Have you ever heard of restaurants coordinating on this? Well, this is what I was saying about the, the monetizing. So they, all of the places that would have been on this passport that this company is issuing, they're aware of it. So, and in fact... Um, as I wrote about, some of the restaurants that were part of these crawls don't even typically serve the item that was a specialty. So in this case, it was grilled cheese. This was down in Florida. Um, and the winning grilled cheese came from an Asian noodle shop. They never served grilled cheese, but they were voted best <laughs> of the crawl, and now they will always serve grilled cheese. It's entirely random. Apparently, they've won quite a few times before, so they also serve clam chowder because that was another crawl. Um I don't know. I think kind of the fun is that it's... Chowder cross seems like that could hurt after a while. <laughs> it depends how cold a day it is. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think part of the fun, again, like what we said earlier, is just that it is sort of impromptu. And I did do... The clam chowder made me think of this. One that you wouldn't think as hard as it is. I, I tried to do my own uh, she crab soup crawl mm -hmm. here in Charleston. One of the first articles I wrote uh, about, about food in Charleston. And I thought this, I had this great idea that I was going to go, you know, I mapped all these places out. I was going to start over, you know, somewhere in East Bay and, you know, eat six or eight bowls of sheet crab soup and then figure out which was the best. And I got to stop two and I walked out. I was like, ugh, because it goes down easy. It's just a little little cup of sheet crab soup, but it's rich. rich. It's a lot of cream and a lot yeah. of stuff in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I, at that point, I backed off the crawl and just spread it out over a couple of days and it, yeah. it got the article done. So you got to pick careful. That's why the, the clam chowder, I don't know. That seems like that could catch up with you real yeah, fast. Yeah, I agree. No, I, I'm still on harping on this idea. Somehow it doesn't seem as, as good when somebody plans a crawl for you. It just gives you a list and says, 
just go do this. It's like, especially if they're, someone's making a grilled cheese special for your, your crawl. It seems like it needs to be more organic, sort of a grassroots thing where people get together and we're going to go, go out and experience a town, not, you know, we want to just go whoever wants to pay a little money to get some marketing and, and go eat at their restaurant. So keep your hands off the crawls, marketeers. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Leave the crawls to the people. <laughs> that's right. Leave it yeah. to the experts, who, or yes, not the yeah. experts. Leave it to the, the people. Leave it to the, right. you know, the grassroots effort. All right, so it is now February, which means here in Charleston, everyone is getting ready for the big Charleston Wine and Food Festival, which this year is being held March 1st through 5th, um, right in the middle of downtown Charleston. They always take over Marion Square as yep. our headquarters. Um, so we thought this would be a good time to preview what's coming up during the festival and talk about food festivals more broadly. So, Robert, how, how do you describe wine and food? Yeah, that's what uh, I tried to think of. How do you describe wine and food? Obviously, it's it's a it, it's gotten a little bit bigger, it seems like, over over the years. We've been doing it for uh, about 15 years now in Charleston. Um, but it's about a five-day food festival. Uh, draws uh, chefs and diners and you know, winemakers and, and people from all over the place to Charleston started off originally with being very wine centric, hence the, the wine of food. But over time, a lot of beer and spirits and everything else has, has creeped into it. But unlike a lot of festivals, this was a little bit different because some food festivals are sort of in one spot and it's sort of like a lot of tents and vendors and things and you go there and you and you sort of roam around. They, they have that it, it, with the Charleston Wine Food Festival in Marion Square. They have a giant tent with all the vendors and things. But it really is a festival that takes over the entire town and uh, all over the peninsula, but even out to uh, to uh, to Bowen's Island, way out by Folly Beach, up into Mount Pleasant. There's just five days of, of events, many of which are staged by the, the festival, but then there are all these uh, sort of you know, on the fringe events that other people stage because everyone else is in town. So there's the pop-up events and things like that. So it's really just a, a whole mix of things. I think, you know, if I describe sort of the core, they do have the big, uh, what do they call the, the big tent in uh, the, the, the festival village, I guess. Culinary, like, village. Culinary, Culinary village. village. Culinary village in Marion Square, which is right in the, in the middle of downtown. Huge tents and, and it just you can just get past and you just roam around and eat food and well, drink wine and you all run around and wait in line yeah you wait in line but wait we'll, in we'll line. get to that point but in theory you, you, you just run around and eat a bunch yeah uh, but then they have a lot of seminars where you have you know, maybe an hour hour and a half uh focused on a specific topic originally there's a lot of wine seminars that was sort of the focus but over time they've 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 grown out and then there's um the the it used to be called diner rounds i think they're called signature dinners now which is where uh, a great many of the restaurants in Charleston will uh, have you know close for the evening and have a special ticketed dinner where usually bring a like one chef will come from out of town pair up with a local chef and they'll have a you know sort of a blowout meal uh, for for all the guests and then there's lots of outdoor parties and feasts and a, a whole bunch of other things so it's it's basically five days of food, wine, beer, liquor, and uh, you know, roaming around Charleston. Right. And so my sense, um, having been here, and, and you've been here longer than I, so I'd be curious uh, your thoughts on this, but it does seem that wine and food has become more of just the uh, a predictable part of the schedule. It, it seems to me that it's a little bit more like Siwi here in Charleston, mm-hmm. which is a big hunting, fishing, wildlife expo, um, where it, it's just it just comes around. Yeah. I, I feel like the the local excitement is a little more muted um, each year. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the, for the people in the industry, you know, it just becomes this five days of no sleep because it, not only are they are the restaurants all open uh, and doing doing regular business, but then they're also having to they're, they're running from this event to that event to the other event. So for the people in town, at least, it becomes a big just sort of oh my gosh, here it comes every March. Uh, get ready not to sleep for for ten days. Um, you know, getting ready for it and then recovering from it at, at the end. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It, it has definitely changed in character over time. Like I said, it originally started off more as a, a wine-centered uh, event, so it was mostly focused on wine seminars and, and the dinners and, and, and dining. Um, now it seems to be a lot more different events. There's a lot of sponsors coming in from all over the place who are staging these events and doing doing different things. It's hard for me to say because I've never had the experience of attending as just sort of a, an outsider who went and bought a ticket. Uh, I, by the time the, I went to my first one, I was already you know, writing for, for local press, so I, so I went in to cover the events and, and, and have ever since and have often presented at it. So a little hard for me to, to, to see that character. I do think um, at one time it was more centered just in Marion Square. It was sort of like uh, more of your, your typical food festival where it's in a place and everybody comes to that place. Now it's become this thing that's sort of spread all over the city and people are bouncing from here to there and, and, and all over the place, which is in many ways is good because if you're a visitor from out of town, it's not like you come in, you stay at a hotel, and you go across the street to the big tent every day. Um, you get to really see a lot more of the city. There are special excursions that take you out to plantations or up. They had one last year. I don't, th- I don't know if they're doing this year or not, but last year they took uh, everyone on bus up to Hemingway, South Carolina. They go to Rodney oh. Scott's barbecue, and so you get to you know get out of town and see, see these kind of things. So that that's what's ch- that, that's part of it has changed. So it's gotten bigger, more diverse, but also yeah. Well, and my sense is this- too that it's not it's not locally focused at all. I mean, if you look at the numbers, people are coming in from out of town. Um, and it's incredibly expensive. I mean, we have to strike that this is really for the very wealthy. Um, so I, I don't know. To me, it just it, it just seems to be um, diverging from the local community um, a little more each year. Yeah, I do have a feeling. And, and there's been you know change turnover in leadership, and you know, so it's sort of evolved now into its you know second or third iteration. I think the corporate sponsorship plays a much bigger role now. A lot more money to it. I do feel like. You know, it, it, it has become part of just the Charleston restaurant industry. You, you got to be a part of it. It's a big marketing event. It, it, it gets tied up. At, it's less it's less a celebration that everyone's going to go to as it is a, you know, all, all these people getting brought into town. We have, you know, we have the obligations to go do, do all these events. Right. And I would say, I mean, the success of the festival has been such that it has spawned festivals yep. all over the Southeast. So it's no longer as unusual in gathering some of these names. You know, I think so we used to draw national media. I mean, this was the time to come see Charleston because yep. you could also get to see all these chefs. And, and it was really huge, special. Yeah, big name chefs would come to town and you get to eat a dinner with them. Yes. And yeah. In New York or something right. like that. It's a really big yep. deal. And so, I mean, I know just from the, again, from the media standpoint, we, you know, everyone would come in and, and that's not the case anymore. More. It's it's not it's it's no longer a must do for for media. Yeah, I, and, and part of that I think is both the nature of the festival here, but also the fact that there literally are popping up yep. everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Um, and you and I have been to some together, and yep. I know you've been to other ones, and I've been to other ones yep. that you know. In every any medium sized city in the South now has a food festival. Many of them are two, three, four years old, just getting off the ground. Some of them are really great, but there's just a lot more competition now out there for for that sort of. I would say the dining dollar, which is a piece of it, but also the dining time, because who has time? To, you can't go to a festival every every weekend. Uh, and in the fall and in the spring, there is literally a festival every weekend that you could go to if you wanted to yeah. uh, somewhere in the south. I'm surprised they aren't. They managed to squeeze them all in. Um, but you know, while we are talking about uh, about the Charleston one, we'll fo- stand that for a second before we before we get out of town. I, I thought it'd be good to you know preview some of the things, some of the different events. And I was looking at you know, a lot of the tickets are, are sold out. And there's an annual or every year they do what's the what's the name of it? Um, it's basically Julian Van Winkle comes in from Pappy Van Winkle, uh, <laughs> Fame Bourbon, and 
brings a whole couple of bottles of Pappy, pours Pappy Van Winkle and talks about it. That sells out in about uh, three seconds flat So uh, every year, so you can't get into that. But there are still, you know, these are ones uh, are all still available tickets, at least as of time we're recording this. And one of the ones I thought was interesting that, uh, maybe they did it last year, but I didn't notice. It's called Rudders and Shutters, which is a yeah. I thought that was fun. Yeah. This is a- this is like this is like get, getting away from like the wine seminar and all that. It's sponsored by Nikon uh, yeah. camera, and I think they have they have uh, it's on the Thursday. There's a morning session and, and an afternoon session, and it's really for uh, aspiring photographers. You'll start off over on Shim Creek uh, with uh, I think you'll get they'll provide you with a Nikon camera and some professional photographers. So it's basically a clinic on how to take photographs um and then there's you know it's a food event so apparently there is a lunch uh that you with wine and food and stuff that you can then also take food photos but it's gonna be really mostly i think about taking landscape photos because it can be this beautiful shim creek it's a, yeah it's, it's really cool and there's also i know charleston beer week i think we talked about what seemed like yeah. sort of a pioneer in this but they, they've picked up on integrating more of the sports and activities uh which i think is really fun i think there's a uh, pedals and pints or something yep. i mean we we talked about crawling earlier i, I think as long as you're biking, that's close enough to walking. You know, it's that's just, close. You're on the you're on the ground. You're, you're on the ground. Close to the ground. Um, I, I think that's a terrific idea. I mean, I think what you really want to look at in these festivals, and I think the festivals that have impressed me most are the ones in which there's an experience that you can't replicate on your own. That's the whole idea. And so, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of emphasis is placed on these dinners that are kind of not as good as what you could do on your own you know yeah the, the, the thing about the dinners is I, I used to get really excited about them particularly if you're doing a dinner where there's a big name chef coming in and I've been to some that were really fantastic and, and sort of blew me away but I've went to a lot of other ones um, that didn't and I don't think it's be- the fault of the chefs or anything else like that it's, I think it's the fault of the format which is if you're going to you know you pick it any of the, the best restaurants in, in Charleston on a regular night you know you order your food. They prep it right there. It's it's ready to go. Comes out. It's brilliant. You know when you're cooking for sixty people who are going to all be seated at the same time, um, it's a different way of preparing. You've got to have sixty plates lined up and all that kind of stuff. And and it sort of leads to a little bit different type of food. Or and also to me, it seems the biggest thing is it leads to long pauses between courses where you just sit for. 20, 30 minutes while they're trying to get the next course Absolutely. together. Absolutely. The, the most successful um, guest chef dinners or collaborative dinners I've gone to have been served family style. And that, that seems to be, I mean, that really adapts better for the kitchen. Um, the best one I went to here a couple of years back, um, Zhao Bao coordinated with Uncle Boone's. They did a family style. That's out of New York. Um, family style. It was great. I mean, part of the reason that worked too is that was an organic partnership. Those guys were friends. Um, that's not always the case at festivals. Um, they tend to be just assigned and the chefs may not know one another and I mean that you know how artistic collaborations work that that may not work um but the problem with the family style dinner at least this was when I was at Feast Portland uh this past fall is they have to charge a tremendous amount of money and I think there's a fear that they're not that guests are gonna be like, "What? Well, I paid that much for yeah. this?" And or so, a big bowl or something. And, it, and so, those bowls just got bigger and bigger. <laughs> there were more and more bowls, and the amount of waste was so upsetting that I mean, even though there was all this great food on the table, people just felt sad. Yeah. <laughs> that's really a shame. So. That's yeah. That's that's what we. I, what I think might be interesting to do would be have the collaboration dinner, but not as this seated thing where you sit at one time, just do the way they often do bar takeovers, which is there's a chef in the kitchen 
Absolutely. And you come in, but you get a menu, you order what you want, and you get sort of a blend of their, their food. That might work a little bit better and, and have a better experience. Absolutely. I think that, as you say, that takeover or pop-up or whatever, I think that would be more interesting. I mean, rather than, you know, look, these chefs are great at what they do. They have spent years trying to make their restaurants tick. And if they can bring some of that know-how here, rather than starting from scratch and be like, you want to cook with mackerel? You know, I'd rather just have that, that menu at the outset. Yeah, that's that's one. I was as I was looking over at the so the dinners, I mean, but those are still huge. And, and pick it carefully because if particularly if you've got two chefs who know each other really well or have very similar interests, and they're, they're sort of really big fans of each other. Yeah, I mean that they is could, they could turn out to be they be can, interesting. but that is super insidery information. Yeah, I mean is. that that's is hard really to, it's hard insidery. To pick. Information. It's hard to pick. Even the ones I've picked, I've not had a good hit rate on. Yeah. I've had some that I thought would be great that were terrible and ones that were that turned out to be really, really, really interesting. I saw um, one that still has tickets available, which to me was the most interesting of all the dinners, was the uh, one night only. At- I, I was going to mention that. <laughs> it, 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 this is not the, your, your typical collaboration. This is, is this is actually a really great one. Uh, I'm surprised there are tickets left for it, particularly how, considering how popular Roberts used to be Absolutely. here in, in Charleston. But maybe start. So what's, what was Roberts? So I, I, well, I mean, I never had the chance to go to Roberts, so you should speak to this, but this will be at the gin joint, um, which of course is Robert, uh, give me his last name, Dixon. <laughs> Robert Dixon's daughter's bar, along with uh, her husband. Um, so, Robert, do you want to talk about Roberts? Yeah, so Roberts of Charleston, and I don't know when it opened, but it was wait, 70s at least, 70s, 80s, up until uh, whenever the gin joint opened, so it went well into the 2000s. Um, was just sort of this local institution um, with Chef Robert Dixon, who's a chef but also a trained opera singer. And I think they did two seatings a night maybe uh, and sort of classic, I, I guess sort of French continental type type cuisine. And in addition, so you go in, you get a meal, and then you know, at some point Robert would come out and sing yeah, these you know, these, yeah. these operatic, <laughs> operatic songs. And it was absolutely amazing because you could go in there. Anytime you went there, there was just every, half the tables in there were celebrating like a 50th anniversary or something, just crazy event because it was just a big place where they, where they went. When Robert retired, his daughter took over, and uh, Mary Elena and her husband, Jeriah, they turned into the Gin Joint, which is a fantastic cocktail club. Yep. Uh, totally unlike Roberts, they have some. They have a little bit of food that's really good, but it's more bar snacky type food. But then some of the best cocktails around. But they're going to bring Roberts back uh, for one night only, two seatings. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking through the description here because I would assume they'll still have some gin joint cocktails with it. But it's very much going to be you know Chef Robert back out doing his his uh, singing and everything else. Right, and this is really cool because there is in the food world more and more these kind of reenactments and recreations, but, you know, very different than when, say, here in Charleston we had the Nat Fuller dinner, which was 150 years removed from when it occurred to actually have, you know, the person who was associated with it, um, you know, playing, you know, the greatest hits. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think that, that, yeah. that's a great one. So that is a dinner to, to that I would definitely put on the list. And yeah. it's, it's the kind of thing where it's not just two guys getting together and throwing a, throwing, throwing a meal out there. Um, my favorite events have all at, at Charleston Wine have always been the seminars, which are not the sexy events necessarily. They aren't the big parties or, or they aren't the, the, the like they, they do have a lot of um, things that have taken these sort of competitions and things, which are fun. But um, the seminars are much more low key. But to me, that they, they have been the where I've learned the most, particularly ones where I, I didn't really see any that had tickets available left. For, for wines that fall into this category, but where they would take a certain uh, variety of wine, like like a Madeira or maybe the wines of the Rhone Valley, 
and you know you get a tasting of six of them. You have a very you know usually an importer or somebody who knows a lot know, knows a lot about wines. We pair it to the chef. The chef will make some little snacks. It's just stuff to nibble on small plates while you're drinking the wine. But you really learn an awful lot about wine. And for me, you learn you get to sip them side by side. And that's that's the, the only way. And we were talking about this earlier, you know, with the crawls. It's here's what's similar. If you drink one glass of, of uh, you know Rhone, Rhone wine, Cote de Rhone wine here, and then two months later you have another glass, it's it's hard to really remember what they taste like. But side by side, you can really get the nuances, and you learn about the region. And I've learned far more about wine at those things than I have ever learned trying to read a book or anything else. Yeah, I think of all the food festivals in the South, I, I don't know if we we're going to talk about this specifically, but I really like the festival in Atlanta. And I, I like Atlanta. I've been to that one. Atlanta's terrific. So they take over the Lowe's Hotel downtown, and essentially your ticket buys you a day's worth of seminars. You just, you know, so it's it's structured much more like a um, if you were going to a professional conference. Um, but it's it's you know anyone can go and so they're you know four or five six um offered in each time slot and it's just a really a learning experience which is great my concern in charleston is although oftentimes the substance is fantastic they do try and bring that price up pretty high with you know what they feed you or i had this experience last year at um circular church they had a late night um panel discussion and I think it was about, it was about, they touched on diversity in the restaurant industry. It was really, really interesting. Um, but they brought the price up close to the three figures. Um, just again, just to make a, it, yeah, yeah. That, that is the, the, the challenge. The ticket prices are most of them over a hundred dollars for, yeah. for even like an hour event, which is a lot, even you're getting food, you're getting drink, but you know, if you could bring it, if you've gotten half, then it becomes much more more manageable. I, mean, I know the festival has really wanted to discourage any sort of fringe events or anything like that. But what I said after having gone to that event is how cool it would be if there was something akin to the Piccolo Spoleto, mm-hmm. um, where Spoleto is its own thing, but Piccolo is just a little bit more out there. Um, and for that to have an education emphasis, you know, if you could have different groups and nonprofit, you know, doing whatever it is they do. I think that could be a lot of fun. We're starting to get see that with with wine and food. It got so big that there there are now a lot of fringe events and things. Some of them are open to the public. Uh, many are just for private events because when this many people from the food world come together, the, you know, the, the, there'll be there'll be special events and, and that type of thing. Um, I did note, you know, when I was looking through the, some of the, the seminars, um, that there's a tap the table one, uh, which is going to be uh, on Thursday that has uh, brewers from Allagash and then a local brewery, uh, Holy City, who get together for a hands-on workshop, sort of go through their beers. And, and I, I'm not sure what, the, 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 the master brewers will be there. I think that sounds like that's the kind of thing I like, you know, where you can really get a bunch of beer side by side, hear the people who know about it, talk about it. And, yeah. and, that, and I can see that being something that's not hard for other people to recreate on the fringes. Absolutely. Yeah, if they would allow that, I think that'd be great. One of the ones which sold out, I'm pretty sure, is uh, David Thompson doing the seminar, who's the leading restaurant kind of architect designer in town. Um, and pointing out to folks, you know, here's why I put that window there. You know, I think that'd be pretty <laughs> I fun. think it'd be great because that's something yeah. I, I don't think much about. Uh, I know David Thompson's restaurants always look gorgeous, but yeah. I never, I'd love to hear him th- just even the process he goes through. That, totally. that, that, would, that would be a great one. Well, let's get outside of Charleston a little bit because I know we've been to a lot of different other types of, of, of food festivals and I've seen a lot of different ones. The ones that I, that don't quite, I don't find quite as interesting is where they got the giant tent with a whole bunch of tables and people who are there because they're marketing a product. And I have no, nothing against that. But then you basically pay for money. You wander around. You eat a bunch of stuff. You drink a lot of you know wine and cocktails and beer or whatever. Uh, and people pitch things at you <laughs> and you know try to stick a bunch of flyers in your, your bag. 
that's I mean that's fine if you stumble upon it and it's all free, but it, I wouldn't pay for the, the event, the, pay for the privilege of getting marketed to that. That if that's all your festival is, I don't. That's not a, a big draw. But what? What 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 are the events that you've done been to recently that you thought well this is a really great event? Yeah, like I, I said, I think Atlanta tends to do a really good job. They're continuing to grow. I think they're five years or six years at this point. Um, they they do really well. I I do like the event up in Greenville. Um, they do Euphoria. Yeah. Um, they and and for exactly that reason, they do have a free area. Um, where just anyway, I, I it's sort of like an outgrowth of their farmers market, you know, and so it all becomes very communal, which I I, I like that quite a bit. Yeah, it definitely the the location matters when you're when your events are sort of hard to get to and they're you know and you feel like once you're there you're sort of stuck. That that is one of the, the big pros I think of of the Charleston event is that you can roam around downtown Charleston, but you're sort of central, but then you're not just stuck in a in a in a room somewhere. Um, and it, I haven't been to the Atlanta one. I do. I, I'm not a big fan of ones that are in convention centers where you're just sort of, you know, you're in this big sort of generic place because you don't get a real feel for the city or the town. Um, I did this great event as part of Fireflower and Fork up in Richmond. I, we probably talked about it uh, some on a previous uh, episode, but I thought it was great. It was at the John Marshall House. It was a Madeira uh, and, and Coit's event. And, you know, attendees got to tour the – it's a museum, so they got to tour the John Marshall House. And then I was part of the event uh, with a Madeira, uh, a Madeira cocktail, and David Wondrich was there with a Madeira punch, who's a, a great drinks writer. And uh, the Broad Brent Madeira was there pouring um, several different age Madeiras. So you could taste them side by side. Again, I love tasting things side by side and really get educated. So you learn about Madeira. You learn about – it was historic. It was in the heart of downtown Richmond in the John Marshall House. I mean, that that's all the combinations of a, of a really great event. Yeah, I think Richmond put on a great festival. I know we spoke about that before. I, while you were doing Madeira, I was on a tour that included um, a tour of the CF Sour Company, mm-hmm. um, which was great because that's the only time of year they open it. Um, and so it is that kind of specialness is, is really neat for a festival. Yeah, that's. Um, I, I didn't get to do it, but I, I did. I, I did go to the uh, Rochester Cocktail Festival uh, last last year, and as part of that, Fee Brothers Bitters is is up there, and you can go tour the Fee Brothers plant. So anything that that grounds you in that right. city, and that you can't just go do that anywhere else, uh, to me is 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 what makes one of those, those festivals great. Well, certainly putting on a festival, because I, I do know people who, who work on many of these festivals, they are truly a monumental task to put them on. And I have no idea uh, why those good saints would ever want to do that, because the, just the constant logistics and planning are, are huge. Um, but let's shift gears and talk about a different kind of monument, uh, the kind that actually com- commemorates great moments in food history. And Hannah, uh, I came with this, because you, you wrote a piece recently about the various types of um, food museums and monuments that are out there. And part that particularly grabbed me... Um, was the, the part about historical markers because of being someone who's fond of history. I love historical markers. And the, the most interesting part was that you were writing about the roadside and the same experience I have, which is if you're zipping down the roadside at 60 miles an hour and you see a historical monument, you're, you're taking your life into your hands to try to skid to a stop and see it. Most of them do not have pull-offs or anything like that. But I thought that was really interesting the way they, they came about. Tell me, how did, why did they end up putting them on the sides of roads? Well, they originally, at least in South Carolina, the plan is there was going to be a pullout. And so these came along um, with roads, with the, you know, as the highways improved and people were able to arrive from other states. It's, you know, it's sort of a, a measure of hospitality. Let, let's tell these people, you know, we want them to know about us. Um, but they never found any money for those pullouts. So <laughs> that was the problem. So although they were trying to play into this new automobile tourism yep. um, 
they never paid for the plots, nor did they ever pay for the markers. There's never been any money in the state budget here in South Carolina for historical markers. In other states, I think there is some sort of administrative budget. But, but that's a piece I never really think about. It's like, where do the markers come from? <laughs> Somebody has to decide to put it there, and, and how does that come about? And so it works differently in each state um, in, in it, it, as to whether it's a commission that approves it, if it's an individual who approves it. There does have to be a state sanction of it. I mean, you can't just, like— you know, nail something to the ground and call it a historical marker. But there is a lot more um, private enterprise involvement than I had realized. And so, you know, I mean, if you want to mark the space where you and your wife first met, I mean, it's a really good nice <laughs> anniversary. It's like it tends to be, I mean, in the in the realm of $2,000. So it, it, it's not cheap. But they will work with you. If you have a moment in history that you want to commemorate, the state will generally work with you um, if you've got the money to put up for it. Well, these tend to be, if you think, I think about most of the markers you see, they tend to be about either a certain place, a lot of homes. You know, here is either where a particular, like, uh, you know, a particular, the Pinckney Mansion is, or where, one of my favorite is, this used to be here. You right. can't see it anymore, but yeah. a long time ago, there was a schoolhouse here that long ago burned to the ground. Right. So they tend to be places and also, or where, where you know, battles happened or important events. Are there a lot of food ones out there? No, that's they're really very, very few. So the the few that you see is there. There may be you know that one. It tends to be more related to agriculture. So mm-hmm. if there has been a development of a certain plow, you know that might be marked. <laughs> um, but for the most part, these are still dominated by churches and civil war here in the South. I mean, that's that's what you see most of all. One of the most amazing ones I've come across. Um, I, I was doing a lot of research a while back on Country Captain, which is this dish that uh sort of chicken and rice kind of dish that everyone sort of had this story that it was country captain because it was brought to southern ports by sea captains on ships from india mm-hmm. uh which turns out to not to be at all correct um and i won't go into the, the whole detail of it but um after researching all this kind of stuff i traced it down to to columbus georgia and this family the bullard family in columbus georgia and so then i started searching around all of a sudden online i found a picture of a historical marker sitting out in front of the bullard home and on it it actually it has, says this is the bullard family home where the bullards and uh their cook uh airy mullen created country captain oh wow so the actual has you know the the creation of a dish uh, is, is on a historical marker. It took me forever to get there, and Ari Mullen, who, who's African-American, made there, almost never appears in the story. Oh, wow. But somehow the historical marker got it right, and everybody who wrote about it later just sort of forgot all about, even about the Bullard family altogether, and, and chalked it up some sea captain. So I'm not even sure where the marker came from or anything. I got so interesting because there are these histories written on markers that aren't really well archived yep. anywhere. There is not a good national database, nor at least in the southeast, are there good really state level databases in most states of, of what's out there. So there they, are some online websites that mm-hmm. do it, but I think it's probably more people who are just driving around taking pictures and exactly. sort of manually cataloging them. I don't think it's a it's very yeah. hit or miss. But so there is just this, I mean, this wealth of culinary culinary history experiences that are just waiting yeah. to be marked. Yeah. I've got it's more in my mind. I can just think of like you know fifty markers yeah. I want to stick right. all over right. over the state, but I don't think I have the, the cash to show. Yeah. Up for that. <laughs>
<laughs> well, so putting them on a big marker is one thing. It's very that's a very permanent way. I like them. I, I wish there was a way to pull over uh, easier to see them, or maybe put them. Well, in I think where you walk. It, I was going to say I think there is a movement to bring them more yep. into urban areas. You know, into walkable downtowns, and it's certainly if we, you know, if we do want to commemorate culinary history in that way, oftentimes it occurred in places where people are coming together. And there was one that until recently on King Street yeah. here in Charleston. <laughs> it's taken a few hits. It was it was the Crest Department store yeah. um, yep. where there is a big sit-in during the Civil Rights Movement at yep. their lunch counter. So it's food related. Unfortunately, got knocked down by a delivery truck. Uh, more, I think on Multiple more than one times. occasion, <laughs> yeah. and is currently they're trying to figure out a better place to put it. But that's right. where it should be. It should be right. out in the sidewalks where you're walking along, and something historical happened here right. in Charleston. We get a lot of that because of the historical sites. Put little plaques on all the historic houses and things. But in many cities, you don't get that. You might be walking right down the street, and who knows? You know, there's something really interesting happened over there. Right, and just in the minutes we talk about with food all the time, it really is a way to draw people in. So whether you are talking about, you know, a, a sit-in at a, at, a, at a lunch counter like that, or whether you're talking about, you know, a, a site that was at one point a barbecue restaurant where leaders would have gathered. I mean, I do think food is such a good way to enter so many different points of history. Now, in that piece, you talked a little bit about food museums, which is also an interesting thing to, yeah. to, to me. So there are, I mean, there's a whole other class of food museums, but what I was um, writing about specifically was the opening of the African-American Chef's Hall of Fame. So really more analogous to these historical monuments because it, it's just a bunch of markers collected indoors um, to commemorate to commemorate some of these chefs. This museum um, has existed online for some time, but... They've now announced plans to open it in Savannah um, as a as a real bricks and mortar do you, location. Do you have a sense of do they, what the exhibits might be like? Do I, you? you know, I don't think it's going to be so much exhibits. It's just sort of you know, here's this woman, here's yeah. this man. I think it's going to be more along the traditional uh, model of like the baseball hall of fame. That's at the base that I always I was trying to think about like a chef's hall of fame. Mm-hmm. It's one thing I don't to walk around and look at you know, big pictures and maybe some description, which is good, but that's not significantly different than the online experience would be, except that you're walking around the room. It'd be really great if you had some of the physical artifacts to see, you know, especially, I know some of the chefs are, are, are more contemporary, but some of them are older chefs. I think Edna Lewis is, is mm-hmm. in the, the Hall of Fame yep. and some, um, some, some of the older. It'd be great to have some artifacts from them to sort of see what the cooking, the tools they were using to cook sure. back in, you know, whenever. Artifacts are great, but there is also the sense amongst Hall of Fames, and I say this as someone who went to museum graduate school in Cooperstown, New York, <laughs> there's a lot of talk about, you know, what should a Hall of Fame be? Yep. And there, there is this, this concept that it should be a shrine, it should be a mm-hmm. temple most of all. Um, so it's not where you come to look at artifacts. It really is supposed to to be a shrine. I guess I'm more in a museum mode than, yes, a museum. than, than yeah. the Hall of Fame. Right. It's, it's a kind of two different things. Yeah. So, and, and then, so, yeah, so it is about, about honoring these, these, these people. Well, there's the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Right. In, um, New Orleans. In New Orleans, which which I think is a really interesting place. They just they recently were down the river. They've moved now to a, to a newer newer facility. And in within the museum is the Museum of the American Cocktail, which is near dear to my heart. What I like about that is just they have these great collections of so many, not just you know bottles and 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 you know glassware and things that I expect, but all this uh, ephemera, all these these advertisements, these bar guides, it's just this wonderful wealth of stuff. Yeah, they've and done a, they've done a really nice job. I mean, the other, only other museums I can think of that are separate from, say, just as we were talking about earlier, like a food factory, which oftentimes as you're waiting for your tour, you know, you get yeah, to you see every, every potato chip bag <laughs> they've put out for the last 80 years. Um, other than that, uh, the Johnson Wales campus up in Providence has a museum. Um, that would be interesting. It's not very good. Oh, not <laughs> <very> good. <laughs> they've got... <laughs> 
it, it's just it's just sort of a mess because I mean, food is we've it's such a big topic, yeah. you know, and so it, it's very hard if you're not focused the way that you know maybe the Museum of American Cocktail is. It's it can be very it hard. It's hard because what you can do that where you where you fall down with those kind of things is and I. When I was in graduate school, which was more in literature, we, we, I did a lot of, of literary exhibitions, which is you know first editions and stories of yeah. authors and things like that. And you can just throw a bunch of stuff into the cases and then let you know, with a little note describing what it is and just let people wander around and look at it. But it, if it's done right, and I think this is where it's hard with food because it could be tempting just to say, oh look, here's an old Quaker oats can, throw it over here with some salt and you know with with something over here. Right. But if you do it right, you're telling a story right. and you're guiding people through it and it makes sense and it's a narrative, which is what I think the Museum of American Cocktail does pretty well down in New Orleans, which yep. they sort of take you through from the early, the colonial era, up through the stages of, of American cocktails and drinking, um, you know, stay through prohibition and all that. So so it does tell a story, and you can, you know, I, was, I was in it for hours. You can mm-hmm. literally spend a long time because sure. you feel like you're learning as, as you go, and I think that's probably a hard thing for people to do and, and pull off. So what what's your feeling? I mean, I, will we see more of this food? You know, food for a long time was something no one had really thought much about. It was uh, if it's mentioned in history, it's usually because there's a famine or because you know, there's some, you know, the wheat distribution, you know, <laughs> shaped the, the landscape. But no one really yeah. talked about what people ate. More and more, we're, we're using food as a vehicle for, for history and everything else. Do you think we'll have more? Absolutely. I mean, I think as, as you know, popular history really catches on, we're doing more of the cultural and of the, the democratic sort of thing. I think we'll see a lot more of this, and I think we will see more institutions of what kind, I'm not sure. But as people who have, you know, devoted their careers to food and beverage— they're going to have collections. They're going to yeah, want to be remembered. You, you know, think about that because uh, the, the chefs from from uh, you know 1920 would never leave behind no. their papers and their right. archive <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. of stuff. Right. But think of some of the legends of the you know late 20th or absolutely 21st century. Yep, you know, they'll they'll have a, a warehouse full of things that somebody will want to tag and archive and right. Put on display. I mean, and we know already. Obviously, Julia Child's kitchen mm-hmm. is enshrined in the Smithsonian. Uh, not long ago, James Beard Foundation has a, the James Beard House is a right, you know, right, right. Foundation so I, I think there's going to be more and more of that. That's all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the monumental podcasting studios at the Post and Courier building in downtown Charleston, South Someday Carolina. Someday this may be a monument. At least Someday. we have a plaque right. on the wall. <laughs> right, as we talk about legacy. Um, if you like what you're hearing, please help other listeners find The Winnow, too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download The Winnow and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of The Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the festive J. Emery Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat.